This is an ABC podcast. Fish and chips. Hi, I'm Rebecca Huntley. Welcome to the History Listen. And the Barramundi. Fish and chips. You can buy it anywhere in Australia, in any country town, even in the outback. We really take it for granted that there's a fishing industry that can catch and supply us with delicious barramundi, brim and flathead. But at the turn of the last century, it was actually hard to buy fish in Australia. And it was a Norwegian with the grand vision of stocking our waterways with sea creatures who was the father of our fishing industry. Today on the History Listen, Johan Gabrielsson brings us the story of Harald Danavig, his audacious idea and his mysterious disappearance at sea. All I got was the longitude and latitude of the search party. For a week before he departed, he was restless, walking about the house with his hands tucked into his pockets, a habit of his when considering any serious undertakings. Each day, he said, I do not think I will go on that trip. On the eve of his departure, I suggested packing his release. Don't bother until the morning, he said. I may change my mind and not go. In the morning, he rose at seven o'clock, more restless than ever. The conditions on the 5th of December were stormy with extremely rough seas. They had force 10 winds and no ship of that size could survive in those conditions off the Antarctic. For years, Anne Danavik has been investigating the circumstances around her grandfather's death. She shows me a newspaper article from 1914 where Harald's wife Annie tells the journalist that her husband has a hunch that he might not come back from this trip. Later a friend called with a motor car and took him with the luggage to the trawler. Don't be surprised if you see me back for dinner, was his last message. Later he telephoned to say goodbye. So are you really going? I asked. Yes, was his answer. The boat must go and I had better see it through. That was the last time I heard his voice. I learnt from other sources that he gave orders for his luggage to be left on the deck and not taken down to the cabin, as he might change his mind at the last minute and not go. The only reason they went to Macquarie Island was because the government ordered them to go. There was no choice in the matter. He had to go. He didn't want to because he knew it wasn't safe and he had a fair idea of what the conditions could do to the boat. On a windswept headland in Sydney's south, there is a decaying bunch of buildings. Moss grows on the sandstone. Weeds grow around a huge pool. A hundred years ago, it was filled with scientists breeding and nurturing fish. There are still notes on a whiteboard about an experiment with flounder and flathead. In 2005, it was time to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the Cronulla Fisheries Centre. 
Dennis Reed worked here for the CSRO and New South Wales Fisheries, and he was asked to find out more about the centre's founder, Harald Dannevik. And I was searching and searching, and uh, there was very little in the way of images of his work. There were a lot of newspaper articles, but not too many images at all. I worked there for 10 years at that stage and hadn't realised the significance of uh, his work. I guess it was pretty exotic of somebody coming right across the world with a huge boatload of fish then trying this experiment, built a ship, identified the trawling grounds and then went on a promotional tour to try and get people eating more fish. He was here for such a short time, he accomplished an enormous amount. Now in Xbox buyers is Phantom Muller, trumpeter whining, uh, good biddies buyers. There's an engraving from 1875 showing a fish market in Sydney's Wollamaloo. The fish are laid out on the ground and young boys pick them up and take them to the buyers. But eating fish wasn't popular back then. One of the complaints was that people walked all over the fish, or worse, spat on the fish. Historian Anna Clark has written The Story of Fishing in Australia. Australians didn't eat a lot of fish at the turn of the 19th and 20th centuries, unless they fished themselves, because it was very difficult if you lived in a major city to get fresh fish in those days. Refrigeration and ice making was only very recent industry, so it was really difficult to get, uh, you know, a lot of fish had been... Um, fished out from places closer to Sydney, for example, in the major cities. So fish had to come from further away. And they came by horse and cart or by train with no refrigeration. And so a lot of fish ended up in Sydney three, four, five days old with no refrigeration, was already stale, rotten, before it even got to the fish markets. In 1895, Harald Danabe was walking the streets of Dunbar, a fishing village on the southeast coast of Scotland. Harald was sent to Dunbar from Norway by his father Gunder Dannevik, who was regarded as Europe's foremost fish expert. Harald had worked with his father and gained an enormous knowledge about cultivating fish. In Dunbar he built a successful hatchery. And one evening he was captivated by a young dark-haired, dark-eyed lass who was probably singing opera. Well, Harold had been living in Dunbar in Scotland for a number of years. He arrived in 1894. He would have met Annie perhaps at one of the social evenings that she held when she played the piano and sang for the community. Then Harold got a job offer from the other side of the world. Australia had just become a nation around that time in 1901 and there was a real sense of nation building and how to make Australia a big nation and a great nation. And so there was a sense of how do we build the industries to make Australia uh, a strong economy, I guess. And fishing was an obvious resource that was there that was not being harnessed. So they knew there were loads of fish out there somewhere, but they didn't really have the means to catch them and have an industrialised fishing industry to do that. 
he was recruited by the New South Wales government who were after a sort of world expert in fisheries. And he was only 23 at the time, but he was very highly regarded in Scotland and he was a very practical man and also had a good knowledge, even though his tertiary education was quite short. Anne Danivik's large kitchen table is covered with her archive about her grandfather. There are logbooks, photographs, music scores and paintings. One of them is of her grandmother, Annie. She's dressed flamboyantly as Michaela from the opera Carmen. She was well known for playing the role. Her gaze in the painting is defiant. Annie would have said, I'm not going to the other side of the world with you unless you marry me. They both knew exactly what they wanted and they were very competent at what they did. And I think they got on just fine, giving each other a fair bit of space. Why do you say that? Because Harold was never home. He was always out fishing. There were a few barriers to people eating fish in Australia around the turn of the 19th, 20th century. One of them was appetite. A lot of people were European-born, English-born in particular, and they had grown up on a particular diet of fish which just wasn't the same as Australian fish. So while there is increasing interest in fishing, particularly among the Australian-born, there's a large proportion of the population in Australia who aren't really interested in eating Australian fish and are importing basically preserved cod. The job offer in Sydney came with an interesting challenge, to keep almost a thousand fish alive at sea for five weeks. Before Danavi came to Australia, he was instructed to collect valuable species like flounder, crabs. Liv Jakobsson is a Danish academic. She was studying at the University of Hobart when she became fascinated by Harald Dannevig. It was one of the longest sea voyages at that time where you ever tried to keep those species alive. In Plymouth, the crew on the Arroyo helped Harald with this audacious plan. They installed 10 fish tanks on the deck. A pump system connected to the ship's engine gave the fish fresh water. So you would have had to monitor temperature and everything and current flow all the time, especially in these changing climatic conditions. Most of the tanks were filled with this species' place. Harald had never been to the Southern Hemisphere, but he made an educated guess that this species would thrive in Australia. Place is not only hardy, it also has a wide distribution, so it's likely to adapt itself to new conditions. It's also one of the most popular flat fishes on the British market at the present time. On the 21st of June, 1902, Annie, the daughter Sigrid, Harald, and all the hundreds of sea creatures set off for Sydney on the ship Arroyo.
we have all in all 722 place, 28 black soul, 4 turbot and 3 brill. Add to that 23 lobsters and 32 crabs. Every port they called in it was monitored daily by the press. The newspapers in Australia knew how many fish were coming every day, which must have been daunting because they were losing them in the heat. Horan realised that the experiment may end in failure. July 13. Tomorrow, we arrive in Ceylon. Fish tanks clean before one more push to Australia. All brill and turbot are lost, also most of the crabs. But of the 722 plates, 644 are still alive. A few with a small bruises. 23 of the 30 sold are also still alive. And one of the lobsters. The Arroyo sailed through the Sydney Heads on the 1st of August 1902 and set a record at that time for transporting the most live fish across the globe. When Danavig brought out the uh, fish from Europe, the building wasn't here then of the pool, so that they were taken into an area across there, across the water, called Fisherman's Bay. It was a dream start for the young Norwegian. The fish from Europe were doing well in a sheltered bay near Cronulla. The papers were applauding the successful voyage and Harald immediately began working on his next task, to convince the meat-loving Australians to develop a taste for fish and a fishing industry. Only a month after he arrived, he gave this talk to the Amateur Fishermen's Association of Australia. In nature, there's always a certain amount of destruction. An average female fish produces a great number of eggs, say 40 or 50,000. Some of them are floating on the surface. They're carried away by the tides and ocean currents. They may end up stranded on shores, in which case destruction is immediate. This enormous destruction of young possibilities, of young life in the sea, is beyond the control of man. But man has been able to protect fish eggs from this exposure to the wasteful elements. The method is called fish culture. Preparations are being made, as I speak, to soon have a fish hatchery operating in Cronulla in New South Wales. The larvae were collected and put in boxes, and these boxes were agitated so that when the larvae became smaller fish, the fry, they were then released into a pond, and then when they got larger, grew up in the pond, and then they were released into, in Norway it was fjords, here it was the estuaries. What kind of fish could that have been? Well, originally the fish that were brought from England were place, but they didn't survive for very long. So after that, they had a number of Australian species. There was flathead, whiting, lobsters were uh, tried as well after the European species didn't survive. Well, I know that she taught piano and singing. She had a studio in George Street, Sydney, where she taught. 
There is even evidence that there was a flourishing culture of popular music in Scotland during the Middle Ages. The first reference to Highland bagpipes mentions their use in 1547. And she did concerts where she gave lectures on Scottish music or she sang Scottish songs. And these were very well received and written up in the paper. An entertainment promoted by Mrs. Danavig was given at the Bexley Christchurch Parish Hall last Friday. Mrs. Danavig proved in excellent voice and sang artistically Coming Through the Rye, Happy Song, and as an encore from Carmen, L'amour est un oiseau rebelle. They worked by themselves and they also worked together in Australian society because as a couple they were fated everywhere they went. While Harold's wife Annie was busy with her musical career in Sydney, Harold had a new goal in sight. To build Australia's first marine research ship, a ship that could map where species of Australian fish were located in abundance. He named the ship the Endeavour. Please, Mr. Danavig, one, one more question. Mr. one more question. Tell us more about the Endeavour. The aim is to find out where marketable food fish may be found in the ocean and by a systematic survey, chart the suitable fishing grounds. At 9.15, Mrs Keating smashed a bottle of Minchinbury champagne and cut the ribbon with a beautiful pair of gold scissors, specially made for the occasion. At once, the endeavour began to move and glide gracefully into the water, as gracefully as a swan. Senator Keating said that the day would come when his wife, Mrs Keating, would look back with fond recollection because it was the beginning of the development of the fishing resources of Australia. The Endeavour had an onboard laboratory, freezers, and enough storage for coal to let the ship remain at sea for 10 days. It was a proud Australian achievement, built in Australia with Australian materials. The saloon was Queensland maple. The rails were New South Wales teak and the planking spotted gum. But one engineer, Charles Shepard O'Neill, warned Dunavig that the ship wouldn't be seaworthy in big seas. Dunavig's research on the endeavor was groundbreaking. Before him, there was little or no knowledge about what species existed in the deep ocean. So by going out there, troll the grounds, make detailed record of what he caught, when he caught it, the sizes, how it varied over time, was essential work for an upcoming industry. I'm with Horat's granddaughter at the State Library in Melbourne. In the archives, there are five bound volumes filled with drawings of the different plant and animal species that Danevig discovered on the Endeavour. Rainbow fish, Atherina Danevig, Lactip, Bullseye, Perferis, Afina. Dennis Reed and I have established that at one count we thought it was 190 odd species of fish that he discovered. And then there are many plants, mainly sea plants like sponges and similar things and many, many smaller invertebrates that came up in the trawl catch. At the age of 37, 
Harald Dannevig became Australia's first Commonwealth Director of Fisheries. Shall we see if we can open this gate? I can't quite. Was this automatic? They have a new fence in the last few years. It used to be a big white picket fence. In 1908, the Danevics moved from Sydney to one of the most fashionable areas in Melbourne, Turok. There used to be a very big tree near the front gate and the family used to sit out there and have afternoon tea or little parties. And you can see the front porch there with the big columns and that's where Harold took photos of my father Olaf with his toys. One day, the Danevig family were visited by a newspaper reporter who wanted to find the personality of the man behind so many successes. Like all people of distinguished mentality, Mr. Danavig is burdened with a more than ordinary modesty. It is almost impossible to extract the slightest personal information from his brilliant career. Let's go out on the porch, is one of the few sentences he utters, as if more at home in an open space. But he has a magnetic personality. Energy and force seem to emanate from him. One feels the tremendous power of a great intellect, with a brain clearly suited for science, and eyes best described as mediumistic. And even his wife, Annie Danevig, gets a brief mention. Mrs. Danevig is petite and dainty, and has the most pure soprano voice of delightful charm. And in her arms, she cradles the most enchanting little boy. He also had his inner demons. While a Commonwealth Director of Fisheries, he had to take a salary reduction for absence without leave and using intoxicating beverage in excess. And if he was to do that again, he was to be dismissed. That didn't happen, but we know for a fact that the year after he had to take a further salary reduction. Harald Danevik spent weeks at a time away from his family, either on the Endeavour charting waters from the Great Barrier Reef all the way to Western Australia, or on speaking tours around the country, trying to convince Australians to eat fish. Australians have become meat eaters. Many of them have settled in larger cities, but still adhere to the country practice of having meat three times a day. Under these circumstances, it's not surprising that the fisheries have not prospered equally with other industries, but are now at least 50 years behind other countries. There they are, all touring round Kyandra, looking for suitable sites for the hatchery. And Dunavig introduced trout into the Snowy Mountains and he and just one assistant took fish up to the glacial lakes and the streams through the snowy mountains. It was so important that the Premier of New South Wales actually went on a trip for a week or so with Dunavig and did some fishing in the streams and he promoted that work as well so that in conjunction with stocking of the streams and the glacial lakes, there was the tourism aspect of that as well. So if you go up to the snow mountains today, do you think you will see descendants of trout from those that were planted during Dunedin's time? I'm sure that the trout that are there now, at least 
portions of those would have been descendants of the original trout that were stocked in those streams and rivers. Watch, said Mr Danovic, as he shot his hand over the pool containing two-year-old trout. The fish darted away but returned at once. Then Danovig moved his hand around and round over the water and the fish began to go around too. He said, they think I'm dropping some food in and they wonder where it has got to. They chase one another to see who's been picking it up. Then he threw in a handful of chopped liver and the feeding frenzy began. Then came that day in 1914 when Harl got a message from the Minister of Customs and Trade to rescue the meteorologist on Macquarie Island. It was a five-day journey south from Hobart. Harold didn't want to go. He knew his ship would not be completely safe at those latitudes in those terrible conditions, but he was the best ship available and the other ships were either on duty in the Antarctic with Shackleton or they were doing war duty in Europe. The ship left from Hobart and got to Macquarie Island. He did some experimental fishing around Macquarie Island, some trawling work. Then they set out to come back to Hobart and they ran into a huge gale. of January 1915, Mr Tudor, Minister for Trade and Customs, stated he was still hopeful that the missing federal trawler Endeavour was afloat. The search for her continues. When the boat was overdue, I began to be anxious. After some days, I had a strange experience. A wide expanse of inky black water illuminated with a very bright white light appeared to me. I felt in some way that this mental picture, or whatever one might call it, indicated trouble with the trawler. Some days elapsed, and then I saw a vision of my husband. Annie! Annie! His wife Annie, in Melbourne with the children, would of course have been increasingly worried. There are reports in the newspaper that she was seeing visions of Harold calling her name. 2nd of March, 1915. It is practically certain that the government trawler, the Endeavour, has come to grief. His body was erect, his hands clenched, and his face white as death. All about him was a grey mist. He seemed to be rushing from one point to another, shouting orders. I feel convinced that at the time the vision came to me, the men on board the trawler were passing through the crisis. Whether they came through the grim battle, God only knows. A few people know about it, mainly historians. Some Scandinavians know about him, and besides, the whole business of fisheries was truncated because everything stopped for World War I and it just got lost. The man who made us eat fish 
was produced by Johan Gabrielsson with sound design by Russell Stapleton. The music in the program was written by Seth Gabrielsson and performed by the final year students at the Sydney Conservatorium. The next time I'm having fish and chips with the family at the beach, I will say a quiet thank you to Harold and all those fish he schlepped across the ocean. I'm Rebecca Huntley. Catch you next week on The History Listen.